Welcome to the Public Morality. Since the Supreme Court case in Gregg versus Georgia in 1976 that reinstated the death penalty, the nation has grappled emotionally and intellectually with the efficacy of capital punishment. During the height of its support, the death penalty was seen as the capstone of law and order policy. But now those trends are changing. While 29 states have maintained capital punishment, 21 states have abolished it. What's more, four of the 29 states that continue the death penalty, California, Colorado, Oregon, and Pennsylvania, have placed a moratorium on capital punishment. If a motion is removed from the debate, what does the death penalty as a public policy look like? To answer this and other questions, I'm joined by Robert Dunham. Dunham is the executive director of Death Penalty Information Center. Robert Dunham, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you for having me. I want to begin the discussion with the question that I posed in the introduction. If a motion is removed from the debate, what does the death penalty as a public policy look like? Well, that's a really good question because a lot of the death penalty uh, policy is driven by emotion. But what we've seen is when legislators start looking at the death penalty as a matter of politics, as a matter of policy instead of a matter of politics, um, we see them concentrating on whether it's cost effective, uh, whether it does what it's advertised as doing, uh, and whether it has any contribution to public safety. Uh, And the conventional wisdom was the death penalty would be a deterrent because the more severe a punishment is, the more likely a rational person would be to avoid uh, taking steps to end up with it. Uh, But that's not how the death penalty works in reality. Uh, And the data shows the death penalty does not make the public safer. Uh, It is not a deterrent. Uh, And even if it were, it would not have been a greater deterrent than a long prison term uh, or, uh, or, or life without parole. So, When you take the emotion out of this, uh, you end up with uh, a a discussion of cost effectiveness uh, that ends up with legislators saying, well, it costs more than the other alternatives, uh, and it just isn't effective. Um, What are some of the factors that make it more likely for an individual to receive capital punishment? The The most important factor in whether somebody gets capitally prosecuted is who the prosecutor is. If we took, if we took two lists and on one list we had the facts of a case in which people were sentenced to death and the other list was the facts of the case in which people were not sentenced to death and I didn't tell you which one was which, you wouldn't be able to tell and I wouldn't be able to tell because Uh, as it's been administered, there really is no difference between what ends up as a capital case and what ends up uh, with a life sentence or a long term of years. So when when we then look to see what actually contributes uh, to whether you get the death penalty, it comes down uh, to personality and politics. When we think of the death penalty, the focus is a little bit off. We think of it as a national policy. It's actually a creature of the states. Uh, and beyond that, uh, it's administered at the county level. And we took a look at all the death sentences that have, that have been imposed in the United States. Uh, and what we found was that 
one and a half percent of the counties in the United States account for half of everybody who's on death row. Most of the counties in the United States haven't sentenced anybody to death. Eighty-five uh, percent of the counties in the United States haven't executed anybody uh, in the last half century. So it really comes down to space, place, location, and the politics of the local district attorney. And, and um, if you wouldn't mind, where are, where are those counties where the death penalty seems to be heavily concentrated? Well, there are uh, there are a handful of counties that account for most of the death sentences in the United States. Uh, Los Angeles, uh, Harris County, which is Houston, Texas, uh, Riverside County in California. In fact, there are five Southern California counties that have um, the that they're in the top ten uh, in terms of the largest death rows. Uh, the city of Philadelphia uh, had been third, uh, but it's been declining rapidly. Uh, in uh, in 2001, Philadelphia had more African Americans on death row than any other county in the United States, but its death row has now fallen from 130, from more than 130, uh, to under 60, uh, without uh, without any executions. Uh, then you have places. Uh, in uh, a, a lot of places, uh, counties in Alabama, uh, Houston County, Alabama, uh, has among the highest per capita death row rates in the United States. And the reason you've got so many uh, in Alabama and also uh, in Florida is because for a long period of time, they allowed non-unanimous jury votes uh, to result in death sentences. Uh, so you see a hugely disproportionate rate of death sentencing uh, in those two states. And of course, uh, many counties uh, in um, in Texas and Oklahoma County, where, uh, the home of Oklahoma City, uh, are also high on the list. And if, if you look at the trajectory um, since, um, you know, uh, Greg uh, versus Georgia uh, reinstated yeah. the death penalty in what, 1976. Where is public support for, the, for capital punishment today? Well, that's really interesting because uh, at the height of the death penalty in the 1990s, Gallup placed support for the death penalty at 80%, which was very, very high. Uh, the latest Gallup polls uh, over the last couple of years, it's been either 55% or 56% who say they support the death penalty. But that's in the abstract. When you ask a more uh, nuanced question, uh, the policy question, uh, what's the more appropriate approach uh, to dealing with murder. Is it the death penalty uh, or life without parole? We find that a majority of Americans support the life alternative. And in fact, over the course of the last five years, we've seen a significant shift. Uh, five years ago, when Gallup previously asked the question, uh, 45% of Americans said they preferred uh, life without parole as the appropriate approach uh, to murder. Uh, when Gallup asked the question last October, uh, it had flipped, and 60% of Americans said they preferred life over death. Uh, any data, I, I know we said to remove the emotion, but one of the, mo um, one of the uh, larger emotional appeals is, you know, the, sort of the catchphrase, you know, uh, justice for the victims' families, if you will. Any data on whether the victims' families receive any type of solace once the death penalty has been administered? Yeah, uh, there have been some studies that have been done, and um, part of the problem with this is how you ask the question. Uh, there, there had been an assumption in the 1990s that if you were 
a victim, uh, if you were a survivor of, uh, of, uh, of a homicide, if you were a family member of someone who was killed, uh, you necessarily were going to want the death penalty. That's not actually the case. A substantial number of people do want the death penalty, uh, but there are various different groups of, of people uh, who are family members of homicide victims, uh, and the legal system treats them all differently. On the very basic question, does the death penalty result in closure, uh, there are two different approaches to looking at that. The first is looking at actual executions, uh, and the studies that have been done uh, show that roughly one in five uh, family members of murder victims say that they get some kind of closure from an execution, which means that 80% of the surviving family members don't get closure. And the whole thing has been a myth, uh, and they've been promised this emotional catharsis, and it doesn't happen. Uh, that further re-victimizes them because they don't get what they expected to get. But take it back another step. Uh, the single most likely outcome of a capital case once a death sentence is imposed isn't that the death penalty gets carried out. It's that the conviction or death sentence is overturned. So the alleged promise of closure uh, never comes about in most of the cases because most of the cases that start off um, with death verdicts don't end up uh, with the death penalty actually being carried out. And then you've got to take a look at different classes of murder victims. And we're seeing this more and more. Uh, there are those people whose relatives were killed, but the death penalty is not pursued. Uh, and there's a question about what are they, second-class citizens? Are we valuing uh, some victims more highly than others? Uh, then there's the entire group of people uh, who have been against the death penalty. Um, the, the state wants to pursue it. They don't want it. And they're being victimized by having the state seek the death penalty. And then there's the whole group of family members uh, of unsolved murders. Uh, and what we're seeing is these other groups speaking out more and more, saying we shouldn't be creating different classes of victims. Uh, we should take the savings that you would get from um, not pursuing the death penalty, uh, using it to provide victim services that actually work, counseling, uh, things along those lines, uh, and uh, diverting some of the money that's taken from law enforcement time that gets spent uh, and increased um, expenditures uh, for, uh, for prisons uh, and the extra security you need in capital cases, and use that to focus on solving uh, unsolved murders. So it... Yes, uh, there's a tendency to say that uh, if you're a family member of a homicide victim, you're going to want the death penalty. Um, the reality is much more complicated than that. If you're just joining me, I'm speaking with Robert Donham, Executive Director of Death Penalty Information Center located in Washington, D.C. Robert, as we, as we talk about the death penalty and, and how it's administered, um, where does quality of legal representation play into this? Well, I mentioned earlier that the, the single most important factor in whether a defendant is capitally charged and gets a death penalty uh, is the prosecutor. The second most important is defense representation. And what we've seen is that in jurisdictions that um, care 
about capital defense that have created statewide indigent defense systems in death penalty cases or regional uh, capital defenders who specialize uh, in handling death penalty cases, the rate of death sentencing has plummeted. Uh, we've seen this in Texas. We've seen it in North Carolina. We've seen it in Georgia. We've seen it in Virginia. Uh, in New York, when the state brought back the death penalty, uh, it created a capital defender system, uh, one of the best in the country. Uh, and it turned out that the entire course of time in which New York had the death penalty, there wasn't a single capital defender client who got sentenced to death. The only people who got sentenced to death in New York uh, were people who had waived the right to counsel and represented themselves uh, or who had co-defendants who were represented by the public defender uh, and they weren't able to get the capital defender services. And there's a really striking uh, experiment, if you will, uh, social experiment that occurred in Philadelphia. Because in Philadelphia, for years, the public defender was not permitted to handle capital cases. Uh, and so you had the cases handled by court-appointed counsel. Uh, in the early 1990s, uh, the Philadelphia public defender created an institutional uh, homicide unit that handled death penalty cases. They were granted permission uh, to handle 20% of the cases. And in the time since then, there were 90 death sentences imposed in Philadelphia. If counsel didn't make a difference, then you'd be expecting uh, 18 death sentences for the public defender cases. They got zero. So we know that counsel makes a huge difference. Uh, and we've seen it not just uh, at the trial level, but at the appellate level uh, and in post-conviction. Post-conviction is the stage where you get to investigate the case and raise all the issues that were missed the time before, and you get to present new evidence. And what we found is that when you have court-appointed counsel uh, who have to go to the court to get approval for experts, who have to go to the court for approval for investigators and have to keep going back to try to get funds uh, and whose livelihood depends on not antagonizing the court, those are the circumstances in which you are most likely to get a death penalty. Uh, those are circumstances in which you are least likely to overturn a death penalty on appeal. But when you have an institutional defender who is insulated from the politics of the court system, so the court doesn't get to determine uh, who their experts are, how much they get to spend on investigation, uh, and they have people who are experts in the death penalty, death sentencing rates drop tremendously and reversals on appeal increase tremendously. Uh, does How does... Uh race impact who receives capital punishment and if you would tie your answer also to um, the impact uh, on jury selection well race is present at every stage of a capital case and in different ways first um, I characterize it as, as kind of double order discrimination uh, and the discrimination starts um, at the policing stage uh, not just at the charging stage uh, police are more likely to solve crimes solve murders uh, with favored victims uh, and so you will see more cases being closed more cases being investigated and leading to arrests uh, when there is something about the victim that is favored uh, Unfortunately, in America, that too often is race. So we'll see more cases with white victims uh, getting, quote, solved and moving into the criminal justice system uh, and more cold cases, more unsolved cases uh, involving the inner city uh, and poor black or brown uh, victims. Uh, 
and when we look at the charging practices, uh, first you've got to have to look at who makes the charging decisions. Uh, and in 95% of the jurisdictions in the United States, the charging decisions are made by prosecutors who are white. It's improving over time, and it's, 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 it's hard to speak of 95% whiteness as being an improvement, uh, but it actually is. Uh, but these prosecutors have to make value judgments about whether to go forward with the case. Uh, and what we're seeing uh, when we look at this and in, in most of the jurisdictions in the United States uh, is a white preference. Is that overt bigotry? That's hard to say, but it, it, it certainly is at least implicit bias. So you don't get into the criminal justice system as a capital case um, well, you're much more likely, I should say, to get into the criminal justice system as a capital case uh, if the victim is white. Now, once you are uh, in that system, we, we've taken a look at it uh, and imagine a different set of boxes for each set of victims. So we've got the white victim box, we've got the Latino victim box, we've got the black victim box. Once you're in the system, you are disproportionately likely to be sentenced to death irrespective of the race of the victim, if you are a defendant of color. So we see you are most likely to be charged with the capital, uh, capital prosecution uh, if it's a white victim and a black defendant. Uh, and um, the legal system is supposed to be race neutral. It's not. Some of that is because of bias and some of that uh, individual bias and some of that is structural bias. Part of the structural bias is jury selection in a death penalty case. The jury is supposed to be a jury of your peers. It's supposed to be able to express the conscience of the community. But in death penalty cases, uh, there's a process called death qualification. And death qualification uh, essentially involves asking jurors uh, their views about capital punishment. Uh, and if you have uh, a substantial impairment in your ability to impose the death penalty or your ability to consider a life sentence, you're supposed to be taken off of the jury. Well, that's all well and good in theory, but as a practical matter, views about the death penalty differ in the United States and they differ based on religion and they differ based on gender and they differ based on race. So this death qualification process disproportionately excludes jurors of color, women, uh, and, uh, religious Catholics who oppose the death penalty. So you end up with a jury that is disproportionately white, disproportionately male, disproportionately punitive, and all the studies show much more xenophobic and much more racist. On top of that, in death penalty cases, you get extra discretionary strikes. They're called peremptory challenges. Uh, and the data shows across the United States, whether it's intentional or not, that prosecutors are much more likely to remove jurors of color than they are white jurors. Uh, and so the combination of this death qualification process and these discretionary strikes results in a much whiter, much more male, much more punitive uh, jury selection. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, we see um, discrimination against defendants on the basis of race. Uh, it pervades the system. 
And when we go to the appeals stage, it's supposed to be race neutral. Uh, the judges aren't supposed to know anything except for the facts of the case and the law. But we see that at each stage along the way, the death penalty process becomes more and more racially disproportionate. And so you end up uh, with uh, an even higher percentage of executions in cases with white victims, and you end up in a higher concentration of executions in cases with defendants of color. Now, with all that said, it stands to reason um, that perhaps the most ghoulish of all possibilities since Greg v. Georgia in 76 is how likely uh, have we uh, as a society executed the wrong individual? Well, that's the million dollar question. And we don't know how likely uh, because once somebody is executed, it's very rare that, uh, that people look into it further. But it's absolutely clear that we have executed at least some people uh, who were innocent. Uh, we have a, a web page uh, that is not thorough, but it's examples of cases in which people were executed despite substantial doubts about their guilt. Uh, and right now, there are 18 examples uh, that are on that uh, on that web page. Uh, but I mean, it's it's clear to anybody who is open-minded. Uh, that people who are innocent have been executed. Uh, we think the two people who were innocent were executed just last year. Uh, and, um, you know, there's Cameron Todd Willingham in Texas. Um, there's uh, – I, I think you, you can look almost anywhere. Um, in Tennessee, we have a – a case right now where the family of Sedley Alley uh, is seeking DNA testing posthumously uh, because it was new evidence was discovered that suggests that somebody other than Mr. Alley uh, committed the murder. Uh, the evidence against him was equivocal at best. Uh, and uh, there's evidence that a serial killer was present in the area uh, at the time of the murder. Uh, in Arkansas in April 2017, when the state tried to execute eight people over the course of 11 days, the first person who was executed was, was Liddell Lee. Liddell Lee's sister was with him the day of the murder, and she is absolutely uh, certain that he could not have committed the murder. Again, there is no physical evidence uh, that links him. Uh, and so she filed suit uh, to get posthumous DNA testing. And the Jacksonville, Arkansas City Council uh, just agreed to release the physical evidence for DNA testing. So we may well have the first conclusive proof uh, of a state executing uh, an innocent person. But we all know of numerous cases where there's been a lot of doubt about it. Uh, and we just published a piece the other day about how states, for some reason, are aggressively opposing DNA testing that could correct mistakes, prevent executions that are wrongful uh, from happening. And you have to ask, what is it that they're trying to hide? And given given your last answer, and again um, trying to take emotion out of, out of out of the the debate, but does it not stand the reason that if let's just say 
for this conversation, I support the death penalty. Isn't there also a burden on me to come up with an error percentage that I'm comfortable with in, in executing this policy? Yeah, I would think there would be. Uh, and let, let's say there are 20 innocent people who have been executed. I mean, how many is too many? Um, it's even worse than that, though, because we know we know how many have been exonerated and how many have been executed. There have been 167 documented exonerations. That is people who are wrongly convicted, wrongly sentenced to death, and then were exonerated before being executed. There are 1,515 executions. If we take a ratio between the two of those, that means for every nine and a half executions, there's been one exoneration. And that is a tremendously high error rate just on innocence. And that's got nothing to do with people who are convicted of first degree murder who should have been convicted of lesser charges or people who are sentenced to death who in a fair proceeding uh, would have received a life sentence. Uh, when we look at the reversal rate in capital cases, uh, we are seeing more people having their death sentences overturned uh, than who are ultimately being executed. That's a mistake rate of more than 50%. Now, if planes crashed with the frequency that innocent people go to death row, we would do something about it. And if trains went to the wrong station uh, with the same degree of frequency that we have constitutionally inappropriate outcomes, we would do something about it. So I don't think we can take the emotion completely out of it. We have to look at what is it that underlies this desire to have capital punishment that is making it so that we are not taking common sense steps to ensure that this high rate of unacceptable error doesn't happen. You mentioned, you mentioned DNA, and, and we've made tremendous uh, advances in, in DNA testing o over the past uh, decade or so. Does, does DNA alleviate um, the possibility of executing the wrong person, or there's, is there still more that needs to be done there? There's way more that needs to be done. I think the, the real lesson about uh, from the DNA uh, is not that in... 24 cases, uh, DNA has exonerated um, uh, people wrongly convicted and, and sentenced to death. Uh, it's that DNA is present in so few cases. Uh, and when you see what went wrong in the DNA cases, you realize that the eyewitness testimony was wrong. The police testimony was wrong. The testimony of informants was wrong. Uh, the so-called uh, forensic expert testimony uh, of the local medical examiners was wrong. What the DNA teaches us is that everything else in the system uh, is subject to error at much higher rates than we ever anticipated. Uh, and so the fact that DNA has been available uh, to uh, to bring about exonerations in two dozen cases. Uh, that doesn't mean the system is foolproof. Uh, it means that we need to be looking at the other evidence even harder in the cases that don't involve DNA. And we need to be permitting the DNA testing uh, in the cases that prosecutors in the courts are opposing it. Because the truth matters. And in these cases, the truth is a question of life or death. You know, in Troy Davis's case, there wasn't DNA uh, that 
could have shown that the seven witnesses who recanted told the truth when they recanted. Rob, Robert, I'm going to stop that, you right there. Talk about the Troy Davis case in Georgia and, and explain to our listeners what that case was. If you would. Well, Troy Davis, Troy Davis was convicted and sentenced to death in 1991. Uh, and uh, he, his was a case uh, in which Witnesses said there were there were nine witnesses uh, who who testified uh, against him, uh, and one by one um, they changed their story. Davis was convicted uh, of the murder of a police officer, uh, and when you have the murder of a police officer, it's highly emotional. And Troy Davis uh, and is African American and was the police officer white. That's right. Okay. That's right. So it's it's racially charged. Uh, it is a case where the police want to get somebody. Uh, they focus on Troy Davis, and then they start pressuring witnesses uh, to make the case. One by one, the witnesses say that they testified the way the police told them to testify. Uh, and you just don't have that many witnesses miraculously change their stories, especially in a highly emotional case like this, unless there's something to it. So we see this a lot uh, in uh, in higher profile cases, and it's most dangerous uh, in cases where you have a, a police officer as a victim, because then you have the police with an incentive to get somebody, uh, and you have them acting much more emotionally and much more erratically uh, than in other cases. That's why I find it so disturbing uh, that we're seeing at the federal level uh, and in some states these um, uh, attempts by state legislators uh, and uh, and by Congress to shorten the appeals process uh, in cases involving police witnesses, uh, police victims. Those are the kinds of cases in which you are more likely to see uh, police and prosecutorial misconduct. Uh, those are cases in which you're more likely to see tunnel vision. Those are cases in which you're more likely to see racial discrimination and racial bias, and you're likely to see witnesses being pressured to testify so that the police can get the case closed. And who knows whether they actually believed that Troy Davis was the perpetrator or they just decided that some guy was going to get it and it happened to be Mr. Davis. But whatever it is, these are the kinds of cases that require extra procedural safeguards, that require the courts to be more thorough, not less thorough, uh, and in which the danger of racial bias is at its height. And Troy Davis, I think any neutral observer looking at his case, uh, sees that this was a black man who got framed for the murder of a white officer. And that's, that's not acceptable. It never has been acceptable. Uh, and it raises the entire specter uh, of, our, uh, of our racial history, where you have slavery, you have lynchings, you have Jim Crow laws, uh, and you have black people uh, being targeted because somebody has to pay. That's not acceptable with the death penalty. 
when you mentioned the Troy Davis case, I, I, I'm reminded that you had, um, when you talk about politics makes strange bedfellows, but you had uh, former President Jimmy Carter and former Georgia Representative Bob Barr, very conservative, very pro-death penalty, on the same side advocating in behalf of Mr. Davis. That's right, and we do see this. We we do see this often, um, you know. There's a lot of American politics that's racialized and ought not be. If you are an honest person, and and I think that uh, that that Bill Barr is an honest person, um, you look at the facts of a case. You don't want to be killing innocent people. I mean, it's just not acceptable in order to get a case closed that you pick uh, some random innocent person or someone who coincidentally happens to come to the attention of the police. That's not the way you do things. Uh, and there are a number of cases. The, the Rodney Reed case very recently uh, in Texas, uh, it's not a police killing, but it's an African-American who is having a consensual sexual relationship with a white woman who happened to be engaged to a racist, dirty white cop. Uh, and uh, Rodney Reed came within a hair's breadth of being executed despite overwhelming evidence uh, that he's innocent uh, and DNA evidence not being tested. We have to see where the DNA testing goes because the fact that he got a stay of execution at the last moment to allow DNA testing doesn't mean that it's actually going to happen. I think people need to remain vigilant. But in that case, uh, with the overwhelming evidence and the high degree of publicity, uh, we saw uh, Ted Cruz uh, saying, you got to stay this execution. You've got to get this DNA uh, tested. Uh, this is not the way the American criminal justice system should work. We need to look at the evidence. We need to look at it dispassionately. We need to assess the cases fairly. Uh, and it's not acceptable that this guy is going to be executed essentially because he's black and was having an affair with a white woman. How close, um, in, in, in your opinion, um, is the United States from joining the other industrialized uh, countries and, uh, and ending the death penalty? I think we were close a couple of years ago. We're farther away uh, today uh, than we were at that point. There is uh, there's movement at the state and local level uh, across the United States away from the death penalty. Uh, the death penalty had been authorized in 42 states. Uh, it's now down to 29 states uh, with Colorado likely to abolish this year and several other states pretty close to abolition. And we've already had nine states in the last 15 years abolish capital punishment. And we're seeing it abolished at a practical level, um, even, even more broadly. Uh, Indiana now has gone 10 years without an execution. Louisiana now has gone 10 years without an execution as of this January. Uh, and so with those two states going 10 years without an execution, we now have 33 states that's two-thirds of the country that either has abolished the death penalty or hasn't executed anybody. And last year, when New Hampshire abolished the death penalty and California imposed a moratorium for the first time, moratorium on executions, for the first time since the 1970s, more than half of the U.S. population uh, is now in states that either has no death penalty 
or will not permit executions to go forward. So I think at the state and local level, uh, more and more counties not pursuing the death penalty, uh, we're seeing a death penalty on the decline. But there were four justices who people thought were likely uh, to vote to declare the death penalty unconstitutional. Um, With the last Supreme Court appointment being um, blocked when when President Obama didn't get to appoint Merrick Garland, uh, and that appointment went to Gorsuch. Um, Donald Trump. Yeah, that the appointment went to Gorsuch, and Donald Trump then got uh, another appointment. Um, we now have uh, what seems to be a firm control of the court uh, by justices who uh, who are unlikely to consider declaring the death penalty unconstitutional anytime soon. Now, we know over time, justices' views change, so uh, that still could change, but I don't think we are as close to abolition uh, as we were in 2016. Uh, so, for those who uh, are listening to the broadcast and, and want information, more information um, that you offer, Death Penalty Information Center, uh, t- tell them where they can go. How can they find more information about it? Well, we have a, a website, www.deathpenaltyinfo.org, uh, and on it uh, there are thousands of pages uh, of information about capital punishment. Um, think of the issue. It's up there. Uh, we have innocence. We have uh, deterrence. We have cost. We have race. Uh, a whole range of information. Uh, and if folks are interested, uh, you can sign up for our newsletter. We send out a newsletter every week uh, on weekly developments in capital punishment. Uh, you can sign up for that online. Mm-hmm. Robert Donham, Executive Director, Death Penalty Information Center. I want to thank you, sir, for joining me today on The Public Morality. My pleasure. Thank you for what you do. I would like to thank today's guest, Robert Donham of Death Penalty Information Center. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the public rally at their studios. The public rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us the public rally, I'm Byron Williams. Thank you.